Welcome back to Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community help. Today's topic is about the Linux Foundation Research Open Source Maintainers Report from July 2023. If you are listening to this podcast and have not read the report, maybe you want to take a moment to pause. Find in the show notes the link to the report and take a quick look so you know what we are talking about. On the panel today are Don Foster, Sophia Vargas, Alyssa Wright, and Anita Ullman, and myself. And we'll do a quick round of introductions. Don. Hello, everyone. I'm Don Foster. I am Director of Data Science for the Chaos Project. I'm also on the governing board. And I'm on the board of Open UK and co-chair for the CNCF Contributor Strategy Technical Advisory Group. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Don. Sophia. Hello, Sophia Vargas. I'm a program manager in Google's open source programs office, where I work on a variety of analytical and research tasks focused on understanding contributor experience and project health. Um, and I've also been working with the chaos community for a couple of years now, predominantly in the OSFA working group, data science working group, and risk working group that unfortunately isn't a working group anymore, but we still love talking about risk at any opportunity. Welcome, Sophia. And Alyssa. I'm Melissa Wright. I help lead the open source program office in at Bloomberg in New York City. I'm very much interested in like kind of funding models and sustainability for open source projects and community help. Welcome, Melissa. And Anita. Hello, I'm Anita Human, and I'm a developer advocate and technical writer, also contributing to the Chaos community and um, on the board as well. I'm also on the board of directors for the Dev Network Advisory Board as well. And I'm mostly just passionate open source DEI talks, and I'm happy to be here. Welcome, Anita. And my name is Georg Link. I'm the director of sales at Betrugia, a co-founder of the Chaos Project. I love being on these podcasts. And yeah, happy to be here again and happy to be talking with all of you about this report about open source maintainers. The report has two big sections. One is on the demographics of maintainers and contributors, and the other is about maintainer best practices. So we'll talk about both of those Big sections. But before we dive in, what are some some thoughts, high-level thoughts or questions that you have uh, about the report? If I can start, as a practitioner and not academic, I was really curious to understand more about the methodology from the perspective of, of, of people here. What struck out to me was that there were only 32 interviews. And, and so I'm curious to know, is that enough interviews in order to get like the general best practices and guidelines that we see like further on in the, the, the research? And not only were the, they just 32 interviews, maybe, maybe it's not just, maybe, you know, 32 is a significant number, but also it was such a broad range of projects and types of communities. So while they were all considered critical infrastructure projects, I, according to the census, that's how they were surfaced. It was hard for me to understand and gauge the validity of the findings without knowing if this was like common practice in general research. 
but anybody who has a degree here can, or has read an academic paper can answer. I have, you know, some thoughts on this. They did 32 interviews out of 200 of these critical infrastructure projects that they identified. So, so 32 out of 200 is actually not bad. And, and these are all pretty, pretty important projects. And I can say that when one of the things that you notice when you do this, so these were in-depth qualitative interviews that were an hour a piece. And, and what you find is that when you talk to enough people who are doing, you know, in, in a similar role, you do start to get convergence on a lot of topics. So when I did my PhD research on the Linux kernel, I talked to 16 kernel developers. And by the end of those 16 interviews, they were really like the last few, they were saying all of the same things that the other people had said. And I wasn't getting a lot of new information. So I think, I think it's important to think about this as separate from like, if you were doing a survey, there was just like, you know, fill out this survey, you'd get, you know, expect hundreds or thousands of responses. But with these type of in-depth interviews, you get so much information that it does feel like the best practices probably would have converged. I don't know if Sophia has some additional perspective on that. I have a couple of comments. I'm coming at this more from a market research background versus an academic research background. But I would say also 32 is, is quite a lot for an interview project versus a quantitative project where, again, as Don pointed out, you, you want to be in the hundreds of thousands. But often when you're thinking about it from a sampling perspective, you're trying to get a quote unquote representative sample so that who you talk to is going to represent the majority of individuals that are present in the community. But there's sort of an inherent challenge there with open source because we don't really know the extent of it. And so I think the fact that they were focusing it again on those top 200 critical projects, we're already looking at a subset of the broader open source community versus a general swath. So that's something that I wanted to point out up front. And I think their hand selection of trying to increase more diversity and representation of both project type, I think was sort of their effort to try to get a wider perspective or more perspectives on different types of experiences that could be had, again, in the smaller subset of the extended open source community. So I generally like their approach for that. I think what was a little bit confusing for me was that in some of the language of the findings and the way that the findings were discussed because they had this 32 number. Um, in market research, 30 is, is sort of a very, that's not a very conservative lower bound, but usually say 50 respondents in a sub-segment. But sometimes you'll go as low as 30. Below that, you can't really express things in percentages or groupings anymore in a way that I think because they are over 30, the researchers felt a little bit more comfortable talking about the distribution of respondents a bit more quantitatively versus keeping it all qualitative. And I, I feel like that was a little bit more divergent from some other interview-based products that I've seen where you try to keep the discussion of the responses more specific to the fact that these are individual speaking versus generalizations of a population. So I think that was a little bit, I want to say misleading. It was just a little bit more inconsistent with how I've seen some of these types of findings presented. But I think it was because they had number of 32 that allowed them to start thinking a little bit more quantitatively about it. I think if they were to pursue this, the ideal next step would be to test some of these things in a larger quant study to see if the findings actually come out in a way that's consistent to this, the smaller population. Yeah, I would agree with that. I sort of felt like I just kind of ignored the infographics and the percentages because I felt like that was just kind of on the borderline of, of something that you should 
I don't think that the research should have been represented that way, but I feel like a lot of the findings later were things that resonated with me as someone who's been in this industry and been a maintainer and been working in open source for 20 years. A lot of the findings really resonated with me, but the percentages based on 32 interviews seemed kind of weird. I also want to echo everything that Don and Sophia have already said about set up for a qualitative research study. 32 interviews, fantastic. I have done research projects with fewer interviews. In addition to my concern about, or the concern about the percentages that we have such a small sample size to even try to generalize in percentages, there was another concern with the best practices that were pulled out because sometimes they acknowledged that only one person had this thing or they said almost everyone was paid fully to work on the open source project as maintainers. And yet they made statements about funding for maintainers that are not paid to do so on a full-time basis. So some of the findings have very small number of interview participants that had said something. And in an academic venue, that would probably be rejected as having sufficient data to, to make claims on this. But here, I don't think we are trying to make theoretical claims. Here, it's an inventory of here are the things that we've heard. Even if only one person had said it, it's still interesting to hear what was said on the topic. If I can do a follow-up, I mean, Dawn said that a lot of the work following like did resonate with her. And, I, and while I feel like stuff around like say documentation and governance and diversity did resonate, the funding section really and the, the kind of satisfaction section did not resonate for me. And I feel like it was a very confusing section that, you know, the majority of the maintainers that they interviewed all but one were full-time employed doing open source work yet did not feel like sufficiently supported with the projects they maintained made me question exactly who they're speaking to as well as like what type of questions they're asking. I didn't know how to read the rest of the paper because that one felt so confusing. I mean, so I guess the follow-up question is like, you read the rest of the paper, understanding the methodology was sound, the findings were, you felt that they aligned with your understanding and, and your work and resonated as well? I did to a certain extent. I feel like we're, we're jumping a little bit ahead in the questions. I planned Sorry. Out. No, but it's, yeah. it's fine. I think we're going there anyway. So let's go there. Uh, I think that, again, that based on how they were sampling this, there was always going to be shortcomings in what we could extrapolate to in terms of experience in the broader community. I think a lot of the things that they did surface did resonate with a lot at least my own experience working with maintainers across different types of projects. But I did also struggle with the funding section the most. And I think a part of that did, to your point, was a factor that there just weren't enough people coming from that experience of not being funded to do this work. But I've also kind of flagged that as my own question for further research and understanding different types of funding models. Because I think what's coming up is the conversations around how we were going to grow or increase funding or increase participation by potentially sponsoring more contributors or bringing in contributors or companies. And I think in terms of how this might connect to other research, there has been a lot of investigation of motivation. They, they mentioned that the LF has done their own research into understanding contributors and contributor motivations. I know Georg has participated in a number of studies looking at contributor motivation. I've also worked on some studies working 
best they get in contributor motivation. And they're all coming down to the same thing, which is that people are not here to be paid. <laughs> in terms of at least the studies that I've been a part of and read, people aren't being motivated by that. They're here for different reasons. And this particular paper discusses that as well. But in the funding section, there's sort of this like, well, we need to get paid. We need to have make sure people are supported. And part of that is encouraging more funding and more paid roles in the community. And to me, that's a little bit opposed to a lot of understanding how these things come together and that people are not here because they're being paid. So then if you pay people to be here, how is that going to affect the composition and culture around the project? That's sort of an area that's, I don't want to say unknown. It's a big question for me and for other researchers that are looking at this space. And I think it's something that needs further thought and further investigation. At least that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. So overall, the findings, the best practices, they did resonate with the work that I've done and the research because I've done interviews and talked to maintainers as well. And a lot of things that are showing up here in this report are things that I've heard also. So overall, it resonates. So if we, if we look at the demographics and what we learned about the maintainers that were interviewed. Were there some things that you've found interesting? I nominate Anita. All right. So I think the research does highlight what the definition of the maintainer. However, a lot of people transition from contributor to maintainer. Most of these do not hail from academic backgrounds, do not have the scientific backgrounds. But eventually there are communities that have people that are answering or doing the role of a maintainer from none of these technical backgrounds. But the, I noticed that the research does not like point out much or maybe it's data or the interviewees that are participating in this. But I noticed that there's not much mention of non-technical contributors or persons who have these non-scientific skills or roles in communities. And I wondered if that was like intentional or if there's a different angle to which maintainers come or maintainers can be, you know, put in place. So if you don't have like the technical skills or experiences, does that make you just a contributor that is doing the work of a maintainer, but not a maintainer? But did you notice, I think to this point, did you notice that they call this group of people super coders? I don't know, if, again, if that is typical in this, in this space as well, but it already implies like that you're coming from technical background towards maintaining a project. So I thought that was an interesting observation. Yeah, I feel like the interview selection was biased towards coders. And then there are loads of maintainers who maintain other parts of the project. Yeah, it kind of highlights the inclusivity issue with non-technical contributors, persons who do not have this experiences with coding particularly. I will definitely plus one that Anita and any other comments from Ola and Don definitely felt like that. It was only looking at that subset. And I will say that I, I've contributed to that sort of bias in, in prior analysis, but a lot of it is because if you're doing research like this, sometimes you're, the other sources that you have are all very code-centric and code-activity-centric. And so if you're looking at trying to understand what's happening in a community and that's the sample you, the data that you have, then you want your research and interviews to also kind of try to extrapolate that experience, recognizing that your central data set is skewing toward technical contributions because that's the data set working with, say, logs around GitHub. 
So I guess in, in my own research, I've tried to find ways to either acknowledge that bias or try to expand it in other ways. But I did feel like because of this being interviews and not looking at code contributions, that they had an opportunity to be a little bit more inclusive in their own understanding of what it means to be a contributor. The fact that they acknowledge that they're only counted contributors as code contributors and maintainers, they said, took on other types of tasks that were broader and beyond code that I felt that was a bit misrepresentative as well, in the sense that saying you're only a contributor if you contribute code and then maintainers do more than code contribution. And I didn't think that was acknowledging a huge amount of individuals and work that's happening. And in fact, that came up later when they acknowledge how some projects need more than code contribution, but they are commenting more on supporting infrastructure and the funding section versus saying that these could be other modes of contribution and how you're fostering more inclusive contribution. And that does come through a little bit. I guess they talk about outreachy, but in the diversity section, but not in the encouragement of non-code contribution. So it came up in other sections, but I completely agree with that. And thank you for calling it out, Anita. Georg, how about how about you? What did you find interesting in the methodology section? One thing that stuck out to me, and this goes back to the percentages that with 32 in the sample size, it's not really helpful to have percentages. But what, what stuck out to me is that they said 62% of interviewers were employed to work full-time on their project, but then only 38, so about half, said they feel high degree of support from their employer. And 39% reported that they felt open source work was highly valued in their organization. That just makes me wonder about an organization paying someone to do the work, but then those people who are being paid to do so feel they don't have the support and open source is not being valued. I just found that really intriguing how those numbers pan out where that comes from? From just from working at companies who pay open source developers to do things. In every company I've worked for, it's been a challenge to justify promotions for people who are working just on open source. So they they may be working full-time on open source, but they may not feel supported because they're not getting pay increases. They're not getting promotions because sometimes that can be harder to justify than if you're working on on actual products that generate revenue for the company. And the open source work is often kind of invisible to managers and they don't really know what that person is doing. And so it's harder to evaluate them. The other piece of this is I think that open source developers hear that they've been hired to work full time on their project and they're going to get paid to do that. But I think they underestimate the amount of time that they'll also have to spend on just the bureaucracy of working at a big company. So they still have to go to company meetings. They still have to reply to emails from their manager. They still have to have, you know, there's probably team meetings. There's a big chunk of time that gets sucked up by working at a company that I think sometimes the developers feel like that's wasted time and they don't understand why they're being forced to do this. And that makes them, on the other hand, feel not supported. I agree with Georg. I feel like these types of numbers were really curious for me. And for me as well, I think that there is this kind of tension and dynamic between doing open source for what a company sees as prioritized and what potentially like a community ecosystem would like to do. So I still feel like wearing potentially an open source developers, still wearing like multiple hats and, and moving back and forth and that sort of like effort 
can feel like you're not being supported to just focus and impact the open source project. Open source contribution can be done outside of like work priorities. And so you're still kind of like maintaining and being part of the open source project outside of like your nine to five commitments. I just feel like there's this weird tension like and dynamic that we have to carry in open source communities, whether you're employed full time on to do open source or not. Completely agree with what Alyssa and Don have already echoed. I think maybe this is also coming from the perspective of a large company with very systematic ways of managing roles. I think kind of the conversation around how the diversity of work that maintainers actually do uh, is more than just code too. So if we think about all of that work, if you're a software engineer and they're running community calls and trying to understand process and people, those don't look like software engineering tasks either. So I think there's also been some conflict where the work that you do goes beyond the role that you're assigned to inside of an organization. And some roles look a little bit more like open source work and some roles don't always. And so I think it's, I found individuals trying to pick and choose the work that they highlight internally that does represent their their role and their expectations, but it doesn't always fit that neatly. And that does sort of yield some conflict to Alyssa's point where you don't get to do all the work that you want to do or need to do in the community because it doesn't look like your job during work hours. So you find yourself doing it after hours because you recognize the importance of it and you still want to bring that to the community. Thank you for, for explaining a little bit about your experience and how these numbers could be explained. I appreciate that insight. I would also like to move on to the next section in the report where we talk about best practices, maintainer best practices. And there are several sections that the report has. Best practice around contributor experience, community governance and management, documentation, funding and other forms of support, diversity, and preventing maintainer burnout. And Anita, I would like to start with you. What have you found interesting in this section? What have you taken away? So personally, I think I found um, the documentation section interesting. And that's because um, the, it kind of says that most open source projects struggle with retaining documentation contributors. However, like just a few lines after that, it also says that engineers are the ones that develop the documentation. And when it comes to documentation, there's always this problem of, you know, having an extensive documentation, but dealers are not able to actually utilize this document to the purpose that it's supposed to. Oftentimes it's because it either has so much technical jargons that contributors who or users who want to benefit from these documents do not have an understanding of, or it is just not developed in a way that makes it easy for people to, you know, just grab content that they go over. And it makes me wonder whether the problem of not having like robust documentation that can be utilized by everyone and still serve the purpose might be because there's this lack of collaboration between contributors who are actually experts in writing and experience in this area and engineers. So the documentation comes together. You know, having engineers write documentation will definitely result to some of these minor challenges in documentation. I think that's what I picked from that. I don't know what any other person thinks of this. So documentation is something that 
I hear about a lot. Keeps coming up. It is something that projects are notoriously always struggling with. And it's something that very few people really want to work on from what I hear. There are some that really enjoy it, but then they need to get a lot of input. And something that goes into documentation also is how it's created and presented that is super important. This comes out of research where people have different learning styles and they comprehend it differently. And if we have someone who jumps in and to documentation and says, okay, step one, what do I need to open a shell? Okay, I'll do that. What's step two? Oh, I'll, I'll do that and try. If I fail, I go back to a previous step. But other learning styles, they are more inclined to read the whole process before they do something and they already want to know what's going to happen next so that they know they're on the right path. And you can write the documentation in those different ways and, and that thereby include or exclude certain learning types and certain contributors. So I was missing that kind of discussion here from the best practices, acknowledging that the way the documentation is written is important. The best practices that I see in here was more about, okay, how do we make sure that there is documentation written? So that's what I saw in here. On that note, Georg, do you think that there was an opportunity to connect more of the best practices? Like if we are being more aware of the type of learning styles for documentation, maybe this would address diversity and inclusion efforts. You know, like it seemed like there was an opportunity to understand how best practices in one of these categories could potentially influence um, factors in another of the categories. Yes, I do think so. There are several items where it crosses between the different categories here in the section that were not explicitly called out. Another example that I saw was establishing a code of conduct, which is listed under community governance and management. But it's also super important for creating a welcoming community and for diversity. Maybe you could talk more about the diversity angle while we've kind of touched on that topic. Yeah, sure. The diversity section, there are three recommendations in here. One is to make diversity and inclusion a first order, order goal of a project, to pair mentoring with diversity efforts, and to participate in third-party programs to boost diversity, such as outreachy. And I think the intro to the diversity section resonated with me where Authors acknowledged that virtually none of the interviewees had diversity efforts well-structured in their projects. And that is something that I hear a lot. We hear that diversity is important. People want to have many different contributors coming, grow the community. But then when it comes to, okay, what do we actually do? We are still lacking a lot of, okay, what do we actually do about this? So it's work in progress, open source ecosystem level. And I'm glad it's something that we talk about and think about, but there's still a lot of learning that needs to happen here. And the other thing that they called out is larger projects have it easier to focus on this. Small projects where it's one maintainer, very few contributors, or because of the type of project that it is, it just doesn't meet a lot of people. It's hard to think about diversity 
uh, efforts as a something to focus on because there's so much other work to to work on. I sort of have a comment on this one too, but it's a little bit connected back to our early discussion on the methodology in that something I should have said earlier, but is more unique to research efforts like this. These were identifiable interviews. They had people's names and companies explicitly listed in the report and the acknowledgement session and in the quotes. In a lot of research like this, we choose to have a completely anonymous participation and we'll list companies that were interviewed. And because of anonymization, not, not, yeah, I list this right now for all of them. I counted 28 and there are 32. So four people are not listed. When you do anonymous surveys, you can ask more detailed questions around the demographics of the individual survey. Like they said a range of ages, but didn't say age. They didn't say anything else besides gender split in terms of who these people were and what might have colored their own perspective and experience on, on a topic like diversity. But I see that as part of sort of the hesitation to not expose too much about these individuals because we already know their name. Um, and we know who they are versus if you keep it anonymous, you can go a little bit deeper into those types of conversations because you're protecting the anonymity and privacy of that individual by not having them named in the report. So I think that was sort of an interesting decision from the, from the perspective of the researchers to keep these interviews identifiable where, I guess, where they opted in. I guess if you could opt out in this case. But I think that limited the conversation you could have on something like diversity because of the privacy implications and willingness to share in a public and identifiable context. Plus one. I, I think that, yes, that really stood out for me as well. And I found it really interesting that, you know, they identified one person as not feeling financially secure in their role, but that person was referenced a number of times, but was never identified while other people had direct quotes, like highlighted the research. It made me curious to, of how to read the research and the, the results. I also found it interesting, I know I put this as a comment, but like in the acknowledgements, people were identified by their company affiliation and not their project affiliation. And we were talking about like open source project maintaining, not about the, the companies per se. And so I, I thought that was an interesting insight into the bias of the research. Yeah, I agree with that. I was hoping to see the project, those maintainers actually maintaining actively and not the companies that they're employed in. One of the questions that I have since we are here in chaos and talking about measuring project health and looking at projects, assessing them, is there any connection that you see between what's in the report and what we're doing in chaos? I mean, chaos project is called out explicitly on page 29 as a resource, oh. which I'm super excited about. I mean, at the very end of a 29-page paper. But I guess if you're only reading the conclusion, you get to it. This is a podcast from the Chaos Project. I think we should think about metrics and how, how it applies in this report. So they don't, uh, like Eric said, they, they mentioned the Chaos Project, but they didn't really talk about a lot of metrics. But I think as, as those of us that work within the Chaos Project, we can look at some of the things that they talked about in this report and think about how we can how we can measure those and how we might be able to think about measuring them with the eye towards, you know, an eye towards improving them for our own projects. So, you know, things like one of the best practices was to respond personally to first-time contributors. And you could measure this as time to first response 
filtered by by new contributors to see how long it takes them to get a response and see how how your project's doing in, in that area. Is it doing, is it, you know, are you responding quickly? Could you respond more quickly? Another one of the best practices was setting up automated greeting bots and an onboarding guide. And that could be measured by, you know, the number of people who click on that onboarding link and whether maybe the people clicking on the link make more contributions in the future than the people who don't. But I think, you know, when whenever we're reading research like this from from a chaos perspective, I think we should be thinking about how would we measure some of these things and how how do we know whether our projects are doing this, are doing well enough or you know, define well enough, you know, for your particular, for your particular project. I, I'm curious to know what people thought of the conclusion and the attributes table. I thought this was an interesting suggestion and conclusion of, of the paper. And I kind of wish there had been more space for it. But, you know, the, the general recommendation is to kind of understand part of an open source project to understand where you are across these four vectors. Are you supported? Are you complex? Are you critical? Uh, and where are you in your life cycle stage? And then to kind of the, determine a, a strategy and roadmap for project health based on those attributes. I thought this was an interesting and tangible conclusion that people could walk away with. And I'm curious what else people thought about this uh, strategy. For for me, it's kind of self-evident to say as a project grows, we need to think about better supporting it, higher complexity, and so on. One reference that comes to mind is the archetypes, the open source project archetypes by Mozilla. Um, and so I'll drop that link into the show notes because it gives a much more nuanced look at different types of projects and how they can be set up. I kind of agree with Georg in a sense that this... I've heard discussions like this, and I'm glad you referenced another paper that we can look at because I know I've seen other models like this. But I thought what was missing from it for me is that it ended at mature versus end of life or contraction. And I think we have me think about the life cycle of a project. They don't all live forever. And I think that kind of came out in the burnout section of the like, how much time are you expecting to engage with this and how long? And that made me think about, we think a lot about the life cycle of a project, but we don't think a lot about the life cycle of the contributor past the sort of on-ramp phase in the sense that there is sort of this discussion of how we onboard new contributors. And I know Don has spent a lot of time advocating for practices that welcome new and, and mature and mentor new contributors into more established positions. And the need to do that as the population of maintainers wants to step away. But there isn't really this idea of when, when we all step away or when we think about handing the reins to the next generation. And so something that I think was missing from this was, yes, we didn't talk about age explicitly in the demographics, but how long have these individuals been doing this work and do they expect to do it in perpetuity or is this something that they want to step away from? And I think about that a lot in some of these older complex projects because we talk about it in terms of there's this bucket of maintainers that has an incredible wealth of knowledge in, say, a project like the, like the Kubernetes organization. And when they step out, they're going to take all that knowledge with them unless they can hand it down in a way that's systematic and sustainable. But what's not being said is because they're all about to hit retirement age. <laughs> We're aging out of some of these, these larger, longstanding projects. 
And it just seems interesting to me that we haven't really been talking about it. And I think part of it is because there is a sensitive issue on privacy and age. And we never want to ask someone, okay, are you fibers out of retirement? And are you going to keep working on this project when you retire? But at a certain point, if we want to think more systematically about sustaining our communities and the health of our communities, then we need to start thinking about the engagement life cycle of the individual and how long they want to participate and being more open about their own goals and participation and how long they would like to stay engaged. So I'd love to see more conversation of that and how something like thinking about that cycle can be folded into these sorts of conversations around project sustainability and project life cycle. All right, we've reached the end of the paper and we've also reached the end of our podcast episode. And we always like to wrap up with a round of value ads where we talk about something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life recently. And I'll start us off. One thing that I really enjoy right now is visits from families. Since I'm from Germany, it's always a special occasion when family is visiting. And my mom was visiting for three or four weeks. And my dad is currently here visiting for one and a half weeks. So. Just getting visits from family is always a highlight for me. And we'll do a hot potato. I'll pass it on to Anita. Okay, well, uh, something that has brought value, joy and meaning to my life recently. So I recently just concluded my um, bachelor's in science, microbiology. And I've just been trying to wrap my head around it because I really didn't think it's a competition. But now I'm thinking of the next steps and I'm wondering what is going to be. That has been all about it. I'll pass it on to Don. Yes. So one of the things that has brought me joy recently is I do a lot of walks around around the neighborhood and I've been walking through our old town and I recently realized they have these little plaques that show how old some of the buildings are. And the church was built in the year 1100. So this little town in the UK that I live in has a church that's, you know, thousand or so years old and, you know, pubs that are, you know, also, you know, like 700 years old and, and things like that. It's been really kind of interesting for me. I've started, you know, slowing my walk so I can read some of the, the plaques on some of the old buildings. I'll pass it on to Alyssa. So two things that have brought joy in my life recently. One is simply the sun. The sun came out here in New York City after four days of clouds and rain. And it was just like a glorious fall day with a little bit of briskness and the blue skies and sunglasses on. And I was just so happy to be outside and in the world. Um, and then the second is I had the opportunity to see a bunch of art this past week. And it really was a very impactful experience to be just like lost in a whole bunch of like beautiful stories and pictures and just really allowed me to put the world and life in a bit of additional perspective. And so, and outside of one's immediate, you know, day to day. And so both of those things, the grandeur of the sun as well as art really brought joy to my life. And Sophia? Like Alyssa, I also live in New York City and I think the cold raininess is going to color my my value add this week, which is my apartment doesn't have heat yet because we're in those. It has to be either heat or cool and we're not in the, the heat phase. Um, So I've been making a lot of tea this week and something that I don't know why I've just figured this out, but we buy herbal teas in packets, but you can actually just make them with the fruit directly. 
So I've been making fresh ginger and lemon tea by boiling ginger and lemon in hot water for 15 minutes. And it is so much better than anything that would come out of a dried packet. Uh, It takes a little bit more effort, but it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you can just make herbal tea from these ingredients directly and the quality is significantly better. So if you have the extra time to chop up a ginger root and put it in a pot of water, it is delightful. And I highly encourage everyone to give fresh herb teas a try. While we were on this podcast, I finished a cup of tea that I made out of cinnamon sticks and cardamom pod. So, so yes. And those you don't even have to chop up. You just like throw the cinnamon sticks and the cardamom pods in and you're good to go. Plus one to tea. I have plus one to, I just had pomegranate tea for the first time and it was really quite yummy. So yeah. I'm also sitting here with my cup of tea. <laughs> it's just uh, peppermint. Oh, well, I don't cup of tea, but I think I agree with Sophia on the ginger tea. That was like a topic I did in my um, research in school on how to make treatment for cough with honey and ginger and um, lemon. And I realized that it kind of effective. I didn't, I didn't know that worked until I did a study on it. And now I'm confident to say it does work. <laughs> <laughs> little home remedy there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast, everyone. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.